Well, got to kick off week two of Family Circus with another story of family being a circus. And this one, it doesn't come from the family I grew up in. This comes from the family that I'm building. And this comes right at the beginning of our family. This comes from our honeymoon 11 and a half years ago. I know, spicy potential. So Jalen and I got married in April of 2012, and we made the decision to go to Seattle for our honeymoon. We wanted to go somewhere that was the opposite of New Mexico. So we went for green and rainy, and that was Seattle. Seattle was an awesome spot for our honeymoon. Really nice weather that time of year. Our hotel was this amazing four-star hotel called the Edgewater. I'm actually going to put up a picture of it on screen because it was I don't know how to describe this. It was a four-star hotel built on a pier on Seattle's downtown waterfront. It was absolutely amazing, really awesome. It was like I got it for like a hundred dollars a night, and that's the Midwest in me coming out. Like I got something nice, and I need to tell you that I got it a good deal. Okay, so it was awesome. We saw the Space Needle. We visited Pike's Market. We saw the original Starbucks. Took a tour of Seattle's Underground, which was really fun. We took a ferry out to Bainbridge Island. We ate a lot of fish and chips and crab. It was wonderful. It was a fantastic uh, place for our honeymoon. But on the fifth night of our honeymoon, things got a little weird, okay? And I'll start by telling you this about my wife. While we were dating, her friends and family started to tell me stories of times where Jalen would be sleeping, and then she would start acting out her dreams, okay? And this wasn't something that started while we were dating. This is something that happened throughout her childhood, throughout her teenage years, throughout her college years. Basically, everyone I met who had you know been in a house with Jalen while she was sleeping had a story of Jalen falling asleep and eventually living out her dreams, acting out her dreams. And so um, this is just one of those thoughts that you'd kind of tuck away in the back of your head when you get engaged and you plan to eventually, you know, share a bed with a person. And so the fifth night of our honeymoon, about two o'clock in the morning, I wake up to Jalen jumping out of bed, turning multiple lights on in the hotel room and running into a wall. And when I say running, I don't mean she ran into it once and stopped running. I mean, she crashed into the wall and then she kept like jogging in place against the wall. And when I tried to get her attention by calling her name, she kept shouting, no, I don't need you. You'll never stop me. And I don't know what she was dreaming about or who she, I, I hope she wasn't dreaming about me, but she, whoever she was dreaming about, they were not going to stop her. They weren't going to catch her. And they did. And she certainly also didn't need them. And so after a few times of this happening, I like, I, I said, I said, babe, you're dreaming. There's nothing to run from. And then she stopped dead still, dead silent, and without saying a word and without waking up. She walked back to the bed, got in, laid down, covered herself up, and went back to sleep. I mean, like, and again, I don't, she was never awake, but she just went back to bed. And by the way, I want to make sure everyone knows, she didn't turn off the lights. I had to get up out of bed and turn off the lights. How inconsiderate. I was like, whoa. Okay, so that's what everyone was talking about. That is interesting. That's that, you know, that's, that's interesting. So anyway, we all, I eventually fall back asleep only to wake up at 4 a.m. to Jalen shaking me and yelling, Chris, stop. And I was like, oh no, it's happening again. She's dreaming again. So I kept saying, babe, you're having a dream. Just go back to sleep. And she finally turned on the light next to the bed, which again, that had happened earlier. And she said, I'm not dreaming. A dream doesn't give you a black eye. And that's when we found out that apparently both of us sometimes act out our dreams because she said, I kept rolling over saying, I got to stamp it and then smacked her in the head repeatedly with my brand new thick metal wedding ring. Anyway, long story short, got to spend the rest of the honeymoon getting dirty looks when we would tell people we were on our honeymoon with my wife with a black 
I, and that was the last time we stayed at a four-star hotel because let's let that be the lesson here. Let's blame that on the hotel, okay? Anyway, quick review. Last week, we began this series acknowledging that every family feels like a circus sometimes. Ours felt like a circus the sixth day of our honeymoon. Fifth night, up until the fifth night, it was like, hey, things are going really well. The sixth day forward, it was like, you know what? Maybe you should wear some sunglasses, okay? Every family feels like a circus sometimes, but no one wants their family to feel like a circus all of the time. So for a few weeks, we're looking at God's plan when it comes to family. And last week, we started by talking about how every family needs a ringmaster. And in God's plan for the family, Jesus is our ringmaster. It's not the husband. It's not the wife. It's not the mom and dad. It's not the kids. It's not the grandparents. It's not the in-laws. That in God's plan for the family, Jesus and Jesus alone is the ringmaster. He sets the pace, he sets the priorities, he establishes the rhythms, he points the way, and he provides direction. He's the leader, and we follow his lead as husbands, wives, parents, children, grandparents, and in-laws. Jesus is the ringmaster. And one of the things that I said is so amazing about that is that when we let God be God and let Jesus be in the driver's seat where he belongs, when we let God be God, it allows us to be who and what we were meant to be. And it takes a load of pressure off of you when you're not trying to play a role that you were never meant to play, that you were meant to be dad, you were never meant to be God. You were meant to be wife, you were never meant to be God. You were meant to be parents, but you were never meant to, like, you were meant to be who you were meant to be and who God has called you and created to be within the context of your family, but you were never meant to fill his seat and when you, fill, when you stop filling his seat or someone else stops filling his seat, it allows him to be who he's supposed to be and it allows you to be who you were meant to be. And that takes a load of pressure and a load of weight off when you start playing your role and not someone else's. Now, today, I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 5. You're like, I don't want to hear anything else from Ephesians 5. It's okay. We're not actually going to read something that we didn't lead, read last week. We're actually going to read the same verse we last week. We're actually beginning at the same verse that we discussed last week, because last week, I told you this was nine words and two game-changing ideas for any and every family. And we, if you may notice, we covered one game-changing idea last week, that Jesus is the ringmaster of our lives. And we covered the game-changing nature of that second part of the verse, that we would do everything we do out of reverence for Christ, to honor him, to obey him, to allow him to be the Lord and the leader of our lives, and oh yes, our family relationships, that we would be husbands and wives doing everything we do as husbands and wives following the lordship and leadership of Jesus fully submitted to him, that we would be moms and dads and kids doing everything in our parent-child relationships to honor Jesus, fully submitted to Jesus and allowing our relationships to become more and more healthy as our relationships flow from the goodness of God. Today, today we're going to look at the first part, the first part, which is actually going to be our second idea, but the first part, the first part of that verse from Ephesians 5 verse 21, which may be the most transformational principle that exists in human relationships. What's kind of interesting before we get to Ephesians 5.21 again is that in this letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul tells the church that the family should operate according to Jesus's two greatest commandments. You might be familiar with this story from Matthew chapter 22 in verse 34. This, this story starts where Jesus is questioned because people have seen enough of Jesus, heard enough of Jesus that um, that, that a lot of people are following Jesus, but some people have a problem with Jesus because Jesus is taking the attention away from them. And so they're quizzing Jesus and they're testing Jesus and they're asking Jesus, well, we want, if you come from God, surely you're going to answer this question like we think you should answer this question. So in verse 34 of chapter 22, it says this, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, which is like a fun 
introduction to his story. Well, he silenced this one group of people. So now the Pharisees come. Okay, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And they're like, okay, well, he answered that pretty good. And then Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, and... They're like, oh, oh, there's an and. Okay. And the second is like it. And when Jesus said like it, that verse translates it. And the second is of equal importance. Meaning Jesus believed that there was one and two, but they were one. It wasn't one and two. It was one and one. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Hey, Jesus, what's the most important command? Jesus like, I can't give you just one because life hinges on two relationships, your relationship with God and your relationship with the people around you. And your relationship with God is going to affect your relationship with people around you. And your relationship with people is going to impact your relationship with God. These two are inseparable. And so the commands are inseparable. These are one and the same. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And if you're like me, the way you grew up and your strength, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you love your neighbor with the same love that you would love for yourself. So Paul then becomes a follower of Jesus and becomes a significant voice and in, in, in influence in the church. And, and is aware of this teaching of Jesus that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And that you love your neighbor as your strength. And Paul apparently felt like the term love was a little squishy, maybe a little ill-defined, that as he went out to, to, to the Greek and the Roman world, that saying you just love people, you love God, he's like, I just feel like I need to define that a little bit more. I need to put some flesh on that. Like, like Jesus gave us a skeleton, he gave us the bones, but Paul's like, I, I guess I, I feel like I need to put some flesh and some muscles and some skin onto those bones. And so for people to really understand what it meant to love God and to love people, felt, Paul felt, felt like he had to explain it and give it a little bit of detail and give it a little bit of here's what love looks like. And so when Paul writes to families in the church of Ephesus about conduct within families that follow Jesus, he uses this moment as one of those moments to put flesh on Jesus's skeleton of love. And so he says in Ephesians 5.21, this verse that we read last week, it says nine words and two game-changing ideas. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You're like, okay, so Jesus said, I love the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind and with all my strength. And Paul's like, so you live your lives out of reverence for Christ. You submit your whole life, your whole family, your relationships, your finances. You submit everything that you've got to your relationship to Jesus Christ. That's how you love the Lord your God. You submit to Christ. You submit everything about you, the way you talk, the way you treat people, the way you treat your family, you, the way you act as a husband, the way you act as a wife. You submit that all to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's how you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all of your strength. That's how you do that. And he says, and then you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So again, 
You love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your strength. And out of that, you love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says, this is what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's like, I got one sentence. It's nine words. You submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And here's the thing. For Paul, this is, this is important. For Paul, love always looks like submission. Since we love God, we submit ourselves to his lordship and his leadership. Since we love people, we submit ourselves to serve for their benefit. And in the verses that follow, since we love our family, we submit ourselves to them. Now, what's interesting, and the, the way this comes out in the Greek, you're like, we did this out of order because we're supposed to submit ourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the way Paul says it, we did it in the wrong order. But in the Greek original language, the reason I actually chose to do it this way, in the Greek original language, it actually comes out this way. It says, as to Christ, so to one another. As to Christ, so to one another. And the translation is simply this. Each one is to submit to each other the same as you submit yourself to Christ. Each one, let me just read that again. Each one is to submit to each other or to submit to one another the same as you submit yourself to Christ. As to Christ, so to one another. The way that we would treat, the way that we would honor, the way that we would submit ourselves to Christ we then turn around and do the same exact thing that we would do to Christ if he was in our midst, if he was sitting at our table, we would defer, we would let him finish his thoughts, we would let him finish his story, we wouldn't feel the need to interrupt, we wouldn't feel the need to argue, we would submit ourselves to him. And Paul says, in the same way that you would submit yourself to Christ, so you are called to submit to one another. In other words, not thinking that they are more important than me, but it's realizing that I am not more important than them. Does that make sense? It's not thinking like, oh, well, okay, well, I'm subjugated. No, that's not that we're not subjugated, but we are submitting ourselves. We're not subjugated. We're not ruling over someone. It's not, they don't rule over me. That's subjugation. But submission is a, is a choice to say, we, I, like, I am willing to serve them. I am willing to serve them. And it's making the decision that since I'm not more important than them, I'm not above serving and using my power and position in the family to meet their needs and benefit them. And in benefiting them, benefit the whole family. What Paul unpacks here in these nine words, again, and really the first four words of these nine words is the simple idea. But as I say, simple, I mean, like this, sometimes we confuse simple with easy. This is simple, it is not easy. This is simple, it's not simplistic, okay? So this is the simple idea, but it's not simplistic and it's not easy. The simple but difficult idea of mutual submission. Of mutual submission. Matter of fact, wherever you are, you're watching this, whether you're in your kitchen, if you're in your living room, if you're in your bedroom, wherever you're, if you're on the back patio, would you say this? And I know you're going to say this and, 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 and a whole bunch of people, you know, your family may hear you and they may think you're crazy people and that's okay. Um, the way I'm going to call you to live is to live like crazy people. Okay. So um, what I want you to do is to say the words mutual submission on the count of three. Would you say it with me? Ready? One, two, three, mutual submission. Mutual submission simply means this. I'm going to leverage my time, my power, my influence, my resources for your benefit. And mutual means husbands live this way towards wives 
and wives live this way towards children. And parents live this way towards their, or sorry, and wives live this way towards their husbands. Parents live this way toward their children, and children are called to live this way back toward their parents. And families are called to live this way in response to in-laws. And in-laws are called to live this way in response to, their, to, their, to the family that they are in, their, their in-laws with. This is how we live according to Paul. We live mutually submitted to one another. I live this way towards you, and I hope that you live this way towards me. But whether or not I li- you live this way towards me, I'm going to live submitted to you, living to use everything I've got to the best of my power and the best of my ability and the best of my resources and the best of everything I've got. I live this way submitted to you for your benefit. No matter who I am in the family and what I have in the family, I'll use whatever I've got to benefit you. And what's, what's amazing about this is we think like, oh, that's, that seems so impossible. It seems so difficult. But we have this incredible picture of Jesus at the Last Supper, this picture of Jesus who realized that he was in power, that he was in authority. It actually tells us in John chapter 13, we're told by John that he recognized that all authority had been given to him. I mean, like, again, you've got a job where you're in charge of four people. You've got a job where you're in charge of eight people. You've got a job where you've got a whole bunch of clients and, and you've got the authority and, you've, and you're the mom and you're the dad. And I'm just telling you, Jesus had more authority than you could ever dream of. It says he realized that all authority had been given to him. And the very next thing that he did was to submit himself, to humble himself, and to serve those under his authority, to meet a need for those under his authority that he could, that they could not or would not meet for themselves. That he humbled himself and he served. He humbled himself and he placed himself in a low position, in a lowly position to serve and meet their needs for their benefit. This is the picture of what mutual submission is. That mutual submission says, well, yeah, I may have a role and I may have a position and I may be the husband and I may be the wife and I may be the dad and I may be the mom and we may be the kids and we may seem to have all the power and we may be the ones who seem to be in control and it seems like the buck stops with us and everything is about, is about you know, is, is gonna go according to us. But at the end of the day, Paul challenges us, like Jesus set an example for us. When you have that position of authority, when you have the Bible saying things like, your husbands or your wives submit to your husbands, so the husband is the head of the household, what that really means is that the husband is the lead servant. When it goes the, the parent, you know, parents, you children obey your parents. That means parents are in charge of the household. Parents are, are, are to set the tone for the household. What that really means is that parents are to set the tone of serving sacrificially for their children. This is what at the heart of what mutual submission is, that I would give myself and that you would give yourself to, for the benefit of those within your family. And whatever position you have and whatever place you have and whatever role you have and whatever resources you have, that you would leverage all of that for the benefit of the other people in your family family. Now, let me tell you why this is so tough for us to figure out and and why it's so hard for us to put into practice. See, every one of us has a motion picture running in our heads where we're the star of the show, where we're the central casting, we're the most important character. Now, you, you might argue with that and you may 
you may, you may, you may tell me that, 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 that that's not true of you, but here's the thing. I think that's true for 95% of people. I know it's true for me that like in my family, I, I have a mental motion picture of, of what family's supposed to be like, and I have an idea of how it's supposed to go. And along with that, we've developed a character description over the course of a lifetime that tells us what our character should do and how they should act, and also what our character deserves from all the other supporting cast members, right? So if, if you're a dad, you have a picture of what dads are supposed to look like and what the dads are supposed to do and what rights they have, what dads deserve from everyone else in the family, how everyone else should act towards the dad, right? Like if you're a mom, you have a picture of what moms are supposed to do and you have a picture of what moms deserve within the family. And, and here's the thing, let, let me tell you where you, develop, where you most likely develop your character backstory and your character picture. You, develop from the, you developed it from one of two places, from the family that you grew up in and from the culture around us right? You developed it from the family that you, that you grew up in, and you developed it from the culture around us. Dads develop their picture based on, on, on the dad that they had or the dad that they didn't have. Let's be honest. Unfortunately, sometimes it's the dad that they didn't have or the dads that they see on TV, the dads that they see in movies. Moms develop their picture based on the mom they had and the moms they see in culture. Husbands and wives develop their pictures based on their parents' marriage and the marriages they see presented on our, in our culture and the, marriage of the marriages of their, of their friends and the people that are closest to them. But here's the thing that so unfortunately happens so often in our mental motion pictures. In our mental motion pictures of family, they exist for me, right? Again, no, none of us want to admit that we think this way, but this is the way that so many of us often think when we're the central figure in our motion picture and what we think should happen and how we think it should work and we think how, how family should operate. In our mental picture, motion pictures of family, they, well, they exist for me. And so the kids, well, they exist to, 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 so, that, so that someone listens to me. And my wife, she exists so there's someone who respects me. And if you're a wife, well, I have a husband, so I have someone who will love me. And if you're a mom, well, the, the kids, I have the kids so that, they, so that they bring fulfillment to my life and that they bring joy to my life and you know, they, they bring all this stuff to my life that they exist for me. You know, so I'll be happy when I get everything I want and they are responsible for me getting what I want and what I deserve and them acting the way that I think they should act. In fact, sometimes we think, the re, you know, I didn't do what I, what I wanted to do. I didn't do what a dad should do. I didn't do what a mom should do. I didn't do what a husband should do or what a wife should do. But the reason I didn't do what I should do is because they haven't been doing what they should do. And if they would do what they should do, then I would do what I would do. And it becomes this crazy cycle of family relationships where they didn't do what I thought they should do. And they didn't do what, I, what my mental picture tells tells me they should do. And since they didn't do what they should do, I don't have to do what I should do. And so they didn't act with respect, but I, so that means I don't have to act loving. And they didn't listen, and they didn't listen to me, which means I get to be rude and disrespectful in response to the fact that they didn't listen and obey. So in our mental motion pictures of family, they exist for me, and I can only be happy when I get everything I want, and they do everything I want, and they respond the way that I want, and I get my way. But let me tell you what I know about you. In the moments in the family where you bow up and you blow up to get your way, are you happy? Like, that's a real question. Are you happy in those moments? You're not because you blew up to get your way. And in doing so, you blew up peace in the family relationships. 
this is again our our natural way of thinking and our natural way of operating. Even if like even if you grew up in the church, if you've been following Jesus, there's still a lot of our natural that comes out in our family relationships and the way we think about family. So our natural is to think that they exist for me. But what Paul suggests about mutual submission, why this is so difficult, it goes so against our natural way of thinking. But according to mutual submission, mutual submission requires that me exist for we. In my mental picture, picture of how families should be, they exist to, to fulfill me and to help me get what I want and to meet my needs and bring joy to my life and bring love and respect and bring, like, they, like they exist for me, they exist to help me. In, what, in God's plan for the family, mutual submission requires that me exist for we. And so instead of living my life in a way where they're supposed to bring fulfillment and joy and love and respect to me, I decide that I'm going to leverage everything I've gotten, everything I have, and everything I am for the benefit of them and for the benefit of our family. And I'm just telling you, and this is going to kind of be the bottom line today, and this is, the, this is what, I, what I hope we kind of take away and what we start to put into practice. Family stops being a circus when family becomes a submission competition. Family stops being a circus when family becomes a submission competition. See, again, mutual submission, you know, the, the way that we tend to live, our mental motion picture says, you're here for me. Mutual submission says, I am here for you. And so today, in, in, in the idea of putting it, becoming a family, having a submission competition, you're like, this sounds terrible. This sounds like you walk into a store and everyone's trying to open the door and no one walks in first and, and everyone's standing there going, come on, like just go, no, 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 I'll, no, I'll hold the door, no, I'll hold the door, no, I'll hold the door, no. Okay, well, where do you want to eat? Well, where do you want to eat? Well, I don't know, where do you want to eat? Well, where do you, well, where, well, and, and, and you never eat and you never get into the store. Well, what should we have for lunch? Well, what do you want to have for lunch? Well, what do you, and no one ever says what they want to have for lunch. You're like, you're like, that sounds terrible. And I agree, that sounds terrible. The heart that I want to help you and the, the question that I want to teach you, and you're going to think this sounds so basic, but I'm going to tell you, for some of you, you haven't said this in your family in a long time. And, it, and, and, it, and it's showing up in the way that, that your family interacts and it's showing up in the way that your family sometimes feels like a circus. And so I want to teach you a question that's a simple, simple question. Again, it's not simplistic and there's some reasons that you haven't asked it. But I want to teach you this question. It's the question that mutual submission demands us to ask. And it's the question of, it's the, the, and this is the question, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? Matter of fact, again, if, if you're in your house right now, if you're if, wherever you're watching this from, I want to encourage you. We're going to say this all on the count of three. And some of you, you maybe need to say it a little bit quietly because you've got someone in the kitchen who's cooking and, they would, you know, and they're going to think you're offering to help right now and you just need to finish here in the sermon before you get to helping them, okay? So here's the question. We're going to all say on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. What can I do to help? What can I do to help? Each person in the family, like, I'm just telling you, like, what if whatever role you have in the family, you find a way to ask that question to each other person in your family every single day for the next week. What, what can I do to help? Like if, you're, if you're a teenager or a college student watching this right now, and you're, like, you're, you're going, okay, can, if, I, if I ask my parents that, I think they might have a heart attack because I've lived my entire life thinking that they're here to help me. So, Chris, do you want Chris? Are you do you want me to give my parents? Yes, you have nine one one ready on your phone. But you ask your parents, 
some way. Parents, again, I, I know so like as, as, as you parent your kids, I've got a six-year-old and a four-year-old, and I know we're, you know, feels like uh, we, we, we've, we've gone through the three-nager stage, you know, where it's, they're three going on 14 um, and, and, and all that stuff. And, and I know we're just getting into like homework and schoolwork and all the different things, and all the different relationships and all that stuff. But here's the thing. When I, when I ask this question to my kids, when, when, my, when my younger daughter is, is building something with Legos and she's, and she's frustrated and I come and I sit down on, this, on, on, the, on, on the floor beside her, I say, hey, what can I do to help? Is there, is, there something, is there a way I can help? Is there something you're having trouble with that I, that I can help with? Can I use my daddy strength and my daddy muscles and my 40-year-old man mind that, that, that can see things a little bit better that you can't see right now? I'm just telling you, there's something so magical about those moments and the connection that's built there is strong and it's lasting. Wives, I know, I know why you don't ask this question. You, like, you don't ask your, your husband this question because when, he, when you ask this question, he probably doesn't answer. He goes, anything I can do to, you know, what can I do to help? No, nothing, nothing, nothing. He just mumbles and kind of shuts down. And I understand why you don't ask, but you, get, you find a way sometime this week to get your husband's attention and just say, hey, is, is, is there anything I can do to help? And, and, and if he says, no, nothing, no, I'm, I'm good, you're, you're, you're fine and you're off the hook. But I'm going to tell you, when you walk out of the room off, after offering you know, to, to help with something, I'm just telling you, He's going he's gonna to have a moment where he gets off his phone or he gets off of whatever else he's doing. He goes, huh, she just came and offered to help. And she hasn't done that in a long time. Huh. It's like she, it's like she cares about me and is interested in what I'm doing. That's a big thing. And husbands, I'm going to tell you, the reason you don't ask this question is because when you ask this question, you know there's a list. you like, well, what can I do to help? Well, actually, you know that piece of furniture that we bought at Ikea or we bought at Target that you know, like four months ago and it's been sitting in our garage and no one's put it together, but you said you'd put it together? It'd be really great if you'd put that together. And you're like, ah, see, that's why I don't ask the question. Because I said I would and I haven't. Or I, you're like, I, I, I don't know how to load a dishwasher. Guys, figure it out. It is not that hard. I'm, I'm a 40-year-old man. Like we just got a working dishwasher in the last two years. It's the first time in our in our life that we've had a working dishwasher. And I want to let you know, I I I have figured out as a man how to load a dishwasher. It's amazing. It can be done. Okay, I, I promise. It can be done. I'm just telling you, whatever it is that you're like, whatever's you know holding back and going like, I if I know I know when I ask this question, I know what they're gonna want me to do. Okay, ask the question and do what they want you to do. What can I do to help? This is a question that builds connection. It's a, it's a question that builds a habit of service and of mutual submission. This is the question that may just be the thing that brings your family back to healthy. And I'll tell you why we don't ask. We don't ask because of fear. Again, we don't ask because of fear. Husbands, you know what's on the list when you ask that question. Wives, you know what's probably on the list when you ask that question. Teenagers, you don't know what's on the list when you ask those questions, and that's what scares you. You like, you're like, oh no! If I ask that question, Dad's gonna fire up the the, the rototiller. If I ask that question, Dad's gonna go get gas in the mower. If I if I ask that question, Dad's gonna get out the weed whacker, and I'm gonna be doing this. If I ask that question, I'm gonna be out in the front yard picking weeds out of the rocks. Like I'm like I'm like I know like I don't know what, but I know there's something that's coming on the other side of that question. We don't ask the question because of fear. 
We don't ask the question because of fear, because we think someone's going to take advantage of us or someone's going to make us things, do things that we don't want to do or someone's going to take us far outside of our comfort zone. What can I do to help? Well, can you drive me to the mall? Oh, the mall. I don't want to go to the mall. Can you take me to get some new shoes? I don't want to get new shoes. Well, actually, can you get go to the store and pick up the groceries? Oh, I don't do grocery shopping. Oh, no. And I'm just telling you, listen. You ask the question, not because you want to do what, 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 what's, uh, what's on the other side of the question. You ask the question because you want to have what's on the other side of the question. You want healthy relationships. You want strong connection. You want a family where everyone mutually submits and serves each other. That's what you want, and it only comes on the other side of that question. See, the thing this question threatens is actually the key to having a great family. So you know what makes for great family? It's a great family. is a family who says, I'm willing to leverage all of me for a healthy us. So, I, so I'm willing to ask the scary question, which might put me out of my comfort zone and might actually, someone might take advantage of me and someone may ask me to do something that I want to do. And someone, someone may ask me to do the thing that I said I wouldn't, that I said I would do and I haven't done. And the fact that they asked me to do it when I asked what, what, what I can do to help, the fact that they asked me to do it, it just reminds me of the fact that I haven't done what I said I would do. It makes me like, like, so yeah, asking the question, it might make me do these things, but it also makes sure that I get closer to a family with a strong connection and a strong idea of mutual submission where we serve one another in love, which is a healthy us. That's why strong families are full of people who say, I'm willing to leverage all of me for a healthy us. I may not get everything I want, but that's okay because what I want more than anything is for us to be great together. See, here's the thing. I'm close with this. When you meet people who fell in love, got married, stayed married, and they're still in love 40 years later, and you wonder how they did it, they did this. I mean, they probably didn't do it right away because they had some things to unlearn too. But I'm just telling you, people who stayed together and they're still in love 40 years later, they figured out along the way that it was about serving one another in love and bringing everything we have and pushing it into the middle for the benefit of the marriage. When you meet people whose kids actually enjoy being around them as, a, as teenagers and then around, around them as adults and they want to come home and enjoy time with family once they're adults and you wonder how they did it, they did this as moms and dads. Here's the cool part about this. When you see someone, you go, how did they do that? That's what they did. And what's amazing about that, the cool part, is that this is something you can do. This is something every single one of us can choose. This is something that I, that, that I need to choose. This is something that my wife needs to choose. This is something that my kids need to choose. This is something that, that, that every single one of us needs to choose, but every single one of us can choose. That is someone you can become if you'll put this into practice. So here's the question, what if we start today? What do you have to lose if you start today? You may have an hour to lose putting together the Ikea furniture. You, you may have an, uh, 30 minutes to lose where, where, where you go to the grocery store, but what you gain on the other side is so valuable and so lasting. I'm just telling you, it's worth asking the question. It's worth putting this ideal into, into practice. It's worth trying 
mutual submission. And I'm going to tell you what you need to do. You try it today, you try it tomorrow, you try it the next day, and you keep trying it every single day until it becomes the habit and the pattern of your life and your family, and you will become the family that is no longer a circus. It will be sometimes. You'll become the family that is no longer a family circus, but is a strong, healthy family where everyone is, is coming together saying, I don't, I don't have to get everything I want because what I want most is for us to be great together as we love each other and as we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and oh yes, all our family. I want that for you like I want that for me, and I hope that you'll choose this today and you'll begin putting this into practice today to mutually submit, to give everything that we have for a healthy, strong family. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much today for who you are. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. Thank you for your wisdom. God, thank you for this call to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Thank you for the words of Jesus, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. God, I pray that that we would understand the depth of those words and the power they have to transform our family relationships. And so God, I pray today, God, you'd give us incredible wisdom to know what to do. But God, I'm just going to be honest. For most of us, we already have a really clear what to do. To show up in the life of our, of our husbands, our wives, our, our kids, our parents, and to simply ask the question, what can I do to help? And to, and, and to actually show up and answer, be, be, be the answer to whatever the answer to that question is. God, help us to practice mutual submission. Help us to bring everything that we have for the good and for the benefit of those we love the most, those of you who have put closest to us, and those you've given us the most close and intimate relationships with. So God, help us to practice mutual submission. And God, as we practice mutual submission, God, would you turn us into the families that you call us to be, as we love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and our strength, and as we love our families the way we love ourselves. Help us to do this, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.